you, Melissa, for reading, celebrating uh, God's Word, stepping into this this morning. Um, this morning, as you probably might have guessed as we talk about our Matthew journal, we are stepping back, picking back up our study in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, you see behind me that we're continuing with the section that we've entitled The King's Mission, and we're going to continue by stepping back into chapter 9, moving into chapter 10, but, but before we dive in, I kind of want to reset the stage for us. If you weren't with us last week, or if your memory's not as long as mine, uh, last week we ended our, our scene with a, a very um, dangerous accusation on the lips of the Pharisees against the work of Jesus. They were saying, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. And like a good storyteller, Matthew lets that scene fade into dark tones, stamping our minds with the blasphemous glimpse at the twisted hearts of these would-be shepherds of God's people. Then Matthew opens us up not to a a new scene, but to flashes of scene after scene after scene where the king is is reaching out and touching people, restoring not just their bodies or their minds, but their their hearts back to him. The the scenes, they keep spinning by until one settles onto the page in front of us and we read these words, when when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Compassion. That is what I think stares up at us from the stage, uh, from the page, the, the compassion of Jesus, his, his heart leaping up from the page and, and reaching out for us. It is his compassion that I think interprets every moment that we read in this passage. In other words, I think my best attempt at summarizing this passage can be summed up like this. It is the compassion of Jesus that compels gospel mercy and gospel mission. The compassion of Jesus compels gospel mercy and gospel mission. What is compassion? In its most literal sense, compassion means to suffer with, to suffer with another. It's not just a feeling you get, but an intentional entering into relationship because of pain. Not despite pain, but because of pain. It is to step into rather than away from the pain of another. But the gospel actually takes compassion one step further. You see, uh, the gospel of Jesus, uh, it's not that Jesus just suffered with us. It's that he actually suffered for us. You see, Jesus walks from town to town and and, and steps in and alleviates the pain of these people. but, But ultimately, the good news is not just that Jesus alleviates this pain, but that one day he will go to the cross and suffer so that he can make everything right again. It is the gospel that we believe in. He took our pain on himself. It is his compassion that compelled his gospel mission, mercy. It is his compassion that compels his gospel mission. His mission to incarnate, to become human, to live, to die, to, to come back to life for us. It is the same mission that he gave to his people. Not that we might die for other people. Jesus already did that. But that we might point everyone to the one who died for them. The one who suffered for them, the one who took all of our sin, all of our brokenness, all of our guilt, all of our shame, all of our pain. And so we follow in his footsteps. We enter into other people's pain, suffering with them, knowing that Jesus not only paid the price for them and that they can be saved, freed from sin, but that someday Jesus will return and make everything entirely right again. And so here's what I think is one of the most beautiful things about this. It's that we don't have to wait for Jesus to start making things right again. In this in-between, between now and when he returns, he is already working to make things right. He is advancing his kingdom. He is righting what was wrong, repairing what was broken through his people. 
The compassion of Jesus compels gospel mercy and gospel mission. So that, that's where we're going today as we walk through this text. But, but if that's where we're going, you might be going, okay, Eric, how are we going to get there? I'm really glad you asked. Good question. I know that you're with me. Let me show you. The text, as we read through it, actually breaks down into at least three sections. You see, Matthew begins by focusing us in on the compassion of Jesus, how his gospel mercy continues to play out with the people he's with. But he moves on from there to describe the call of Jesus, how his gospel mission expanded from, from him to 12 people that he calls, and then from call to commission, from Jesus choosing to Jesus instructing in order to send them out on gospel mission, to send them out like he had been sent out on mission. That's how this text is laid out. But this morning, I want to do something a little bit different. You see, many of you know that my wife, Jocelyn, got a dog almost two years ago. I say Jocelyn got a dog because he's her dog and my headache. Now, if you've been to my house, you know that I'm warming up to him, sort of. But here's why I've been so slow to warm up to him because of the story that I'm about to tell you. You see, one day, I got a call from my lovely wife that the internet had gone down in our house. If you don't know, I'm tech support at home, right? Resident nerd. But this time, none of my normal troubleshooting actually worked until I noticed an orange cable sticking out of the grass in my backyard. It was frayed, clearly broken, clearly chewed. Now, I don't actually know if Calvin, my dog, dug up this cable and chewed it. There are other animals that live outside. I know that. So I don't really know, but I know, you know. I follow the cable back to my house. I'm a new homeowner. I don't know what this cable is. And what do you know? It hooks into a box that has a big Comcast logo right on the cover. I trace it back to the source, and I realize that our dog and his boundless energy with really sharp puppy teeth cut us off from the internet. I don't know what else he wanted to do, but I'm glad I figured it out before he, his maniacal plan continued. This morning, I want to do something similar. Instead of tracing, though, something broken to figure out a bigger brokenness, I want to trace how Jesus is repairing what's broken to show us the reason he is so intent on, so focused on fixing what sin has destroyed. I want to trace his mission back to the source. And so instead of walking through the text from point A to point B to point C like it's laid out, I want us to walk backwards from commission to call to compassion. Because familia, listen to me on this. It is real easy to follow Jesus to be on mission for Jesus, to put in work for Jesus, and forget why we're doing it in the first place. Forget that the reason we love others, even the reason we love him, is because he first loved us, because he showed us compassion. I want us to take this text backwards to, to end where Jesus began, his gospel compassion. So let me start at the end with the commission of Jesus. Now, I chose that word on purpose and not just because it started with the letter C and was really nice on my points slides, but because when we hear that word, we often think of the end of the Gospel of Matthew. We think of the passage in chapter 28 that we actually studied earlier this year, this text that we call the Great Commission. But you see, before we get the Great Commission in Matthew, Jesus actually gives this first commission to his people. Something special, yes, for the 12, that he, the 12 men that he's calling in this moment, but I think something that sheds light on the commission he's given to us as his disciples. So let's look at chapter 10, and we'll start with the second half of verse 5 as Jesus gives instructions for, for the first short-term missions trip in his kingdom. Look at the text. Jesus begins. He says, Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. Jesus' commission here does not begin with a go, but with a do not go. 
with a, a specification and parameters. You are, you are not to go where there are Gentiles or Samaritans. You see, by this point, they've watched Jesus preach to huge crowds. They know that his focus has been the people of God, Israel first, but that he has not ignored or rejected the Gentiles that have pursued him. Do you remember the, the, the centurion that actually approached Jesus with faith and Jesus responds to him? By the end of this book, Jesus' commission is going to sound a lot different. It won't be a do not go to them, but go to everyone. Jesus is not bigoted in this moment, it, it, not like Israel actually often is with Gentiles and Samaritans. He's not matching their cultural uh, 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 racism, if you will. No, Jesus is being strategic. His mission is first, not only to Israel, because the whole reason that Israel is a people in the first place is because he made them into a people and called them to be on mission, to be a light to all nations. So he goes first to them and tells his apostles to go first to them. But this is not the whole mission. This is just phase one. And despite all that they have done to get them to this point, all Israel has done in being disobedient Conquered by Rome, disconnected from God, God refuses to abandon his people. Refuses to try to figure out plan B, even if they still refuse him. Because as we learn in other parts of the scripture, he remains faithful, even when his people are faithless, because he cannot deny himself. He cannot be anyone other than who he is, and he is 100% faithful, all times, in every place. And so he goes to them first. And he commissions his apostles to go to them first because they are lost, the text says. They are sheep without a shepherd. And so he sends these 12 on mission. He commands them to proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you've received, freely give. Tell people what I've been telling them. And then prove that it's all really true by showing them what happens when the kingdom comes near. Doing what I've been doing, healing, resurrecting, cleansing, exorcising. Jesus essentially authorizes them with the authority to proclaim his message and then prove his message the way that he proved his message. They're to follow his example, right? To, to say what he says and do what he does, but not out of their own power, out of his, because what they have received freely, they are to give freely. They're not miracle workers. They're not shamans on some kind of cosmic joyride. They're not con men trying to pad their pockets. They are followers following Jesus and proclaiming, declaring, announcing the coming of the kingdom so that more and more people would follow King Jesus. Those miracles, they're not even just meant to prove the message. They're also what I would call samplers of the kingdom. Taste of what's, what's coming, what has already arrived with this kingdom. Freedom, restoration, wrongs made right. One theologian explains these miracles, what we might call um, unnatural or even supernatural, as, as really the only natural thing in the world. He writes this, he says, When Jesus expels demons and heals the sick, he is driving out of creation the powers of destruction. He is healing and restoring created beings who are hurt and sick. The lordship of God to which the healings witness restores creation to health. Jesus' healings are not supernatural miracles in a natural world. They are the only truly natural thing in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded. Amen to that. Jesus is not just announcing the kingdom. He is embodying the kingdom. He is communicating the kingdom by what he does. And he is commissioning his apostles to do the same. You see, the mission of Jesus is never words alone. It always includes words, the proclamation of his kingdom, but it also always includes works, the restorative work of his kingdom as it advances through his people. Proclaim and restore. 
You receive this freely, give it freely. But that does not mean it's going to be easy. It doesn't mean that they give because they, before they set out on their trip, they made sure they had everything that they needed, all their needs were covered. They can actually just give out of their extra. No, he instructs them. He gives them amazing authority and power, but then he also commands them to be completely dependent. Look at the text, verse 9. Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts, no bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff. The worker is worth his keep. Don't wait until you have enough money. Don't worry about packing extra. Do the job and God will take care of you. There's a bunch of commentators that I was reading because I'm a nerd uh, uh, that wrote page after page explaining the specifics of this moment. The money and the bags and the shirts and the sandals and the staff. And and I I said, I I thought it was super interesting, but I figured I would not bore you with that. And I would just summarize it with this because I really think this is all that matters in this particular section of the text. Summarizing everything Jesus says here with these words, be dependent. You see, Jesus is is talking about not bringing extra. He's not depriving them. He's not saying don't bring any of it. He says don't bring two. Making sure that they don't depend on their preparations, but on God's provision through others. How do I know it's through others? The text continues. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. You see, Jesus is telling them not just to travel light, but to travel like he did. Dependent on hospitality because hospitality into the home was tied up to hospitality into the heart. Meaning that someone that receives them doesn't just receive them, but is open to receiving their message. And anyone that's open to receiving their message is open to receiving the one true king. And if they're open to that, it means that God has been at work before they even got there. Just like he was at work before Jesus was born. This is how Jesus went on mission. God didn't just send Jesus. He also sent John to prepare the way, a man who God actually promised to send through his prophets even hundreds of years before he was born. Over and over again, the Old Testament, we see the hand of God weaving in and out, not just of Israel's history, but of the history of all nations on mission to save them from sin. Read the book of Hebrews. Read Galatians 3. Remember the prophecies that have been quoted even in this book. God has been at work on mission from the very beginning. Jesus is commissioning these men here, but this was not the beginning of his mission. It was the continuation of his mission. God has been at work before these guys even showed up. And he will be at work through them. And and if I might take it one step further away from this text, but something that I think is seen in other places in scriptures, God will be at work after them. God is always at work. His commission is not the start of his work. I'll even say it more specific to us. His commission for us at TVC way back in 2016 was not the start of God's work in this community. He has been at work here. And he is at work here through us. And even after all is said and done, whatever happens, whatever comes, God will be at work because God is faithful and God prepares the way for his people. So God prepares a place for his apostles in these towns that they enter. Or he doesn't. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that town, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I tell you, it would be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. You see, the commission of Jesus comes with great power, but it's not because of the healings per se. It, is, it comes with great power because of the message that's being proclaimed. And rejecting the, the messengers and their message is the same as rejecting Jesus. 
You see, the, the, the ritual that Jesus is referring to here of, of leaving and shaking the dust off your feet is actually a, a, a Jewish traveling custom where they might shake out their clothes after they cross Gentile territories or e- even the, 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 the area of Samaria. They would try to get rid of the dust, almost as if they were trying to get rid of what they, they considered pollution from pagans or idolaters, from those who worshipped and followed other gods. And so here Jesus is training his sent ones to make a particularly bold statement. To reject them is to reject Jesus, and to reject Jesus is to reject God, to act like a Gentile, a pagan, to claim to worship the true God, but not recognize when he speaks, to functionally be worshiping another God, an idol, even if that idol is just your idea of what God is like, rather than who he truly is. The sin of those who reject the mission of the kingdom in the mouths of these short-term missionaries is greater, Jesus explains, than the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. These towns that were destroyed in the Old Testament because their sin was so graphic, so gruesome, that literally angels had to pull the one righteous family out of there. Those who reject the mission of the kingdom will be judged harsher. But, but why? Because in this moment, the message has never been clearer. The Savior is in the flesh. Those messengers have not been sent from some faraway land, but from a king who was walking these same streets. The commission of Jesus to these disciples, his apostles, continues his kingdom message, announces his kingdom's arrival, and shows what happens when his kingdom comes, the freedom he proclaims, but you still have to receive it by faith. But that's, my, that's the commission that Jesus gives. I want to trace that back. We've got the instructions that he's given, but I want to go before Jesus commissions, he actually calls. And the reason I'm actually transitioning to this so quickly is that, that the way Jesus calls actually affects the message that he's telling them to proclaim. Let's trace the mission here back to the missionaries. See the call of Jesus in action. Who he calls matters just as much as what he is calling them to. And and we kind of instinctively know this, right? Like like if we're we're hiring someone for a particular job, we always look for the right people, right? We interview them and look over resumes. We try to figure out if they're not just able to do the job, but are actually the right people for the job. And Jesus is calling the right people for this job, but it's not because of anything that they have done. They are the right people because of what he has done. They are only right because he calls them and they receive him. The king is on mission, and for the first time in the Gospel of Matthew, he's not looking just for followers. He's looking for fellow harvesters. So I want to start this point at 9, verse 37, where Jesus says to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field, into his harvest field. Right, so we talked about the instructions Jesus gave. Now we step back to listen to who he's giving these instructions to. Right, this is the mission, but who is he calling? And I'm backing up to this verse instead of chapter 10, verse 1, because before Jesus actually calls these 12 disciples to be sent, he calls all of his disciples to pray. He peels back the cosmic curtain to show not just the crowd, but those who are actually following him, his disciples, what he sees. And so he uses this farming image to help them understand the harvest is full. The harvest is ready, but there aren't enough harvesters. The kingdom is here and is now coming. People are ready to respond, but like Paul writes later in Romans 10, how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Pray, Jesus says, that workers might be sent. But don't just pray. Pray to the Lord of the harvest, which tells us two things. Number one, there is a Lord of the harvest. And number two, it's not us. We are not the ones who grow the kingdom. We are not the ones who bring the kingdom. We are not the ones who make the kingdom work. We are the ones who announce the kingdom and point to where the Lord of the harvest is already at work, who respond when the Lord places us in this field or that field. 
when he moves us from that field to this field. We respond because we pray, because we obey him when he answers, even when he makes us be the answer to those prayers. Jesus is pointing out that there's so much opportunity, the harvest is plentiful. There's so much need, the workers are few, and so pray. And so before Jesus calls us to work, familia, he calls us to pray. So he did with all of his disciples in this moment. It's why we as a church family are dependent on prayer because we are dependent on him, the Lord of the harvest, to direct our steps. The Lord of the harvest who calls us to obedience, no matter what that means. Even if it's difficult, especially if it's difficult. Especially when we don't want what he's saying and it hurts. We are obedient and we are dependent because the kingdom has come and is coming and things are being made right. And when we believed in Jesus, he started making us right, repairing what sin broke, restoring what sin took, and he is calling us, inviting us to be a part of that here and now. We just need to be faithful to what he's calling us to, obedient to whatever he calls us to, dependent on him in the middle of all of it. So that's why I can get to chapter 10, verse 1. Where Jesus actually calls these disciples, he says, it said, the text says in verse 1, Jesus calls his disciples to him and he gave them authority to, bring, to drive out impure spirits, to heal every disease and sickness. Did you catch what just happened in the transition? Right? Part of the reason uh, 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 Jesus calls them to pray is because they are joining God in his work. Remember, we're not the ones who begin God's work. We are being invited into God's work. Jesus has already been at work, not just in proclaiming the kingdom, but in, now he answers the prayer he just told them to pray. Because the Lord of the harvest is about to send workers. Don't get this passage twisted. Sometimes, in our enthusiasm for God's mission, we say things like, what will happen if we don't go? Or or even act like we are the ones who have to make God's mission happen. But that's not what happens here. This is not God begging us so that his mission can be accomplished. This is Jesus already on mission saying we can be part of it too. We who freely receive the gift of the kingdom, the gift of grace, the gift of his gospel, we can be part of that that healing in the lives of others. He is inviting us into his kingdom work. He's inviting these 12 disciples into his kingdom work, people who will love and care for image bearers like he loves and cares for them. But Jesus isn't asking for volunteers. He's not trying to give them a vision of what will happen if they don't. He's not guilting or coercing his disciples into his mission. He tells them to pray, and then he turns around and he calls them to it. And they respond. But Jesus does not call who we think he would. These are the names of the 12 apostles. The the 12 disciples Jesus sends, therefore their names are now apostles, which means sent ones. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These 12 are the ones Jesus sent out, apostles, with the following instructions that we've already heard. We've heard those instructions, but I want you to hear their names because I want you to catch the details. If you didn't notice in this list, they are uh, AKAs to some of these names. Some of them are meant to differentiate between this James, also known as son of Zebedee, and that James, also known as son of Alphaeus. One name tag has a, a, a fatal dark mark on it, Judas Iscariot, also known as the one who betrayed him. But there's one AKA that I think stands out from all of them. And it's because it's not meant to distinguish him from someone else with the same name. It's because his dark mark wasn't fatal. And what was meant for evil, what he may have used for evil, God by his gospel turns to good. Matthew, the tax collector. No one else has their job title in their name. Why? 
Because I think Matthew wants us to see that this list of sent ones, handpicked by Jesus, are not handpicked because they're so great. They are picked because he's so great. They are handpicked for their pedigree, but not the pedigree we might think. You see, God makes the call in his wisdom and his glory. He calls who he wants to call because he wants to call them. And he calls rejects. He calls outsiders. He calls losers to reach rejects and outsiders and losers. Or to use Jesus' language, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Sinners like Matthew, the tax collector. Sinners like me and like you. In fact, skipping ahead in the story to the cross of Jesus, this is the gospel, right? Jesus became the rejected one. He is the one who walked out of the gate and became the outsider. He is the one who gave up everything and lost it all so that we might no longer be rejected, so that we might be brought inside to the family of God, to the household of God, so that we might gain everything that is of true value. This is the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is not only who Jesus saves, it's also who he calls into mission with him. Because as one writer writes, God delighted in and still delights in building his church with such seemingly insufficient and slightly contorted building materials. Those who know what Jesus saved them from, how much Jesus loves them, how little they deserve that love after what they've done, these are the ones who Jesus not only saves, but calls into and commissions out of that love. 2 Corinthians 5.14, Christ's love compels us. The commission of Jesus is radical. The call of Jesus is countercultural, And that's all because his mission is unlike anything we've ever seen. But like I've said, it is the mission God's been on since Genesis 3. Why? Well, now we finally get to the source. You see, our walk backwards brings us to the source of Jesus' mission, his compassion. The commission of Jesus is radical. The call of Jesus is countercultural, but it is the compassion of Jesus that actually makes all of it gospel. It is the compassion of Jesus that compels gospel mercy and gospel mission. Mission is just religion if it is empty of mercy. And mercy is just social services if it is empty of mission. But ultimately, both are bad news, anti-gospel if they are empty of compassion. The compassion of Jesus. Because it is the compassion of Jesus that compels, that drives, that fuels the gospel. The mercy we see in the gospel, the healings, the exorcisms, the resurrections, the mission we see in the gospel, the announcement that God's kingdom is finally here, that it's not a palace with a throne room, but a king who walks, talks, and spreads the good contagion of his grace, mercy, love, and compassion. It is not him who becomes unclean, but he who makes other people unclean like we learned about last week. This is the compassion that compels the gospel. And that is what I want us to look at in these final or first few verses. Matthew summarizes Jesus' ministry in 9, verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness. He went everywhere. He taught everywhere. And what he kept saying over and over again was the kingdom of God is here. He said it, and then he showed it, making right what had gone so wrong. Because he comes not in judgment, but in compassion. John three sixteen through 17, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life, eternal life, Because God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus doesn't play. Rejecting his message is rejecting him and the God who who has come to save, but Jesus is patient. And when you read through the gospel, when he speaks of judgment, even very directly, he speaks of future judgment. There's still time. 
At the cross, Jesus took on our judgment, but if we reject the Savior, we are left to answer for our own sin. But there's still time to reject that sin and receive our Savior. The king comes not in condemnation, but in compassion. Because when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. They were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus looks out and his eyes fill with compassion that is bursting from his heart. He sees people past their costume of I've got everything together. Past their mask of everything is fine. He sees their poverty Their material poverty and even more deeply their spiritual poverty, harassed and helpless, wounded and vulnerable, no one to protect them, no one to care for them. And his compassion swells. As as Matthew describes this moment with the words of Ezekiel 34, subtly condemning the Jewish religious leaders who are not only neglecting the sheep, but are the very ones who have been attacking the sheep. The shepherds have been acting like wolves, using them for their own gain, weighing down people with burdens of their own making. Jesus himself said in Matthew 23, they they tie up heavy and cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Their, Their backs are breaking because of unbiblical burdens, and the true shepherd of the sheep, he sees them. And his compassion drives him to expand his mission through his disciples, to call and commission them to love and care. And in just a few verse, a few chapters, his compassion will explode with these famous words from Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. It is his compassion that draws Jesus to them rather than away from them. It is his compassion that draws him to us rather than away from us. He sees us for who we truly are. In all of our sin, and all of our misery, and all of our pain. In all of our evil, in all of our rebellion, and in all of our brokenness. He sees past the middle finger of our mutiny and sees sheep who are desperately lost without him. Familia, we need to see the compassion of the king in this moment. Why? Because if we're honest with ourselves, if we see the sin that's darkened our hearts, if we really come face to face with ourselves, our instinct, my instinct, is to recoil, to move away from him, to think ourselves unworthy of his love. But Jesus does not recoil. In our summer book, Deeper, Dane Ortland captures this push and pull we feel when we encounter the compassion of Jesus. And you'll forgive the longer quote, but I couldn't figure out where to stop it, so I'm just going to read the whole thing. He writes this, he says, We who know our hearts resist this, talking about the compassion, the tenderness of Jesus. We see the ugliness within. We can hardly face ourselves. We feel so inadequate. And Jesus, well, Jesus is perfectly holy, the divine Son of God. It is normal and natural, even in our churches, to sense instinctively that he is holding his people at arm's length. This is why we need a Bible. Because the testimony of the entire Bible culminating in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29 is that God defies what we instinctively feel by embracing his people in their mess. He finds penitence, distress, need, and lack irresistible. You don't have to go through security to get to Jesus. You don't have to get in line or take a ticket. There's no waving for his attention, no raising your voice to make sure he hears you. In your smallness, he notices you. In your sinfulness, he draws near to you. In your anguish, he is in solidarity with you. What we must see is not only that Jesus is gentle towards us, 
but that he is positively drawn towards us when we are most sure that he doesn't want to be. It's not only that he's not repelled by your fallenness, he finds your need and emptiness and sorrow irresistible. He is not slow to meet you in your need. He is not slow to meet you in your need from you. This is the gospel. This is the compassion of Jesus, not just that he suffered with us, but that he suffered for us all the way to death. He was buried, and three days later, the grave could not hold him. He came back to life, not just to prove that he was right, but to prove that he makes anyone who believes in him right with God. He is the beginning of the end of death, the beginning of true life, the one who promises to raise us at the last day, but right now raises us from being spiritually dead in our sins, promises to defeat death fully and finally when he returns. The sin that affects all of creation might still be breathing. We might still be wrestling. But the gospel says that that sin is already gasping for air because Jesus has already declared victory at the cross. The gospel of the kingdom, King Jesus, is on the move and someday sin will be no more. He is faithful, not just to do that someday, but to start here and now. He loves us. He's never never stopped loving us. And he will never stop loving us. Do you believe that? Do you believe what he says, that even though your sins separated him from you, he crossed that barrier and died for you? And that doesn't just mean salvation. Okay, I got that Jesus thing figured out. Now I got to do a bunch of religious things. It means he is with you every step of the way. Do you believe that you are more loved than you could ever imagine? Do you believe in the one who is so drawn to us in our sin and suffering that the text later on of Scripture says he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage? He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And later says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. Do you believe that he not only loves you, but that he sees you? He really and truly sees you in all of your sin, and he still loves you. He is drawn to you. This is what drives mission. It's what drives those he calls. It's what compels gospel mercy and gospel mission. It is the compassion of Jesus we love because he first loved us. Let's pray. lover of our souls, compassionate Savior this morning, you're not only grateful but overwhelmed by your love, by your gospel of compassion that you've suffered for us all the way to the point of death. This morning I am reminded of the words of Hebrews 4, that you are not a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. Jesus, you were tempted in every way just as we are, yet you did not sin. And not just so that you could be obedient, but because you loved us. You suffered and endured for us. This morning we approach your throne of grace with confidence, the kind of confidence that's created by your compassion. We approach so that we might receive your mercy and find your grace to help us in our time of need. We need you. That's why you came. That's why you sent your spirit. Because of your love, because of our need, we love you. We trust you. Help us to trust you more. Amen.